0: face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream.
1: It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident.
2: Hello and welcome to Episode 5 of the Policy Dialogue Series with alumni, staff, faculty and students from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss specific policy solutions that can address and solve the current local, national and international challenges we face. We are recording this on October 21st, 2020. My name is Evan Papp and I graduated with the class of 2011 with a focus on international security and economic policy. And I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which focuses on labor, political economy, arts and culture. And before introducing our special guest, I want to introduce Raymond Nevo, who is a fellow alumni at the School of Public Policy. Raymond, could you let our audience know when you graduated, what you focused on, and what you're currently working on?
1: Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, I graduated from the University of Maryland with a bachelor's in public policy uh, just this May in 2020. And beginning in February of this year, I began working at the National Housing Trust based in Washington, D.C. And my job there um, is two parts. I am the co-lead for the Maryland and Pennsylvania Energy Efficiency for All Coalition, which focuses on Uh, promoting and advocating for energy-efficient, multifamily, affordable housing um, in 12 different states. I also co-lead the Equity Working Group, which has a focus on centering racial equity into the entire project.
2: Very cool, very cool. I'm very excited to speak with Michael Bodakin, who from 1993 to 2018, served as the president of the National Housing Trust and was largely responsible for growing the organization and becoming a leader in the field of affordable housing and advocating for green preservation, urging the targeting of resources for energy efficient, affordable housing. Prior to joining the trust, Michael worked for Mayor Tom Bradley as deputy mayor for housing for the city of Los Angeles. Michael is also an adjunct in the School of Public Policy. Michael, thank you for joining us on the Policy Dialogue series. So before we jump in, could you talk about how you got interested in
0: policy and why others should care about public policy? So I guess I always cared a little bit about policy. I, I had a history and political science degree from the University of Iowa, uh, but I, it turned out that I uh, became a public interest lawyer for about 12 years. And during the latter part of that work, which involved, I was a litigator basically for the first six or seven years for the Legal Aid Foundation. And I realized that I, all the lawsuits we were filing had you know, some good outcomes, but it didn't seem to be very long lasting outcomes. And so probably in 1985 or six, I became much more interested in trying to advocate for policy change at City Hall. I worked with tenants groups. Uh, I always liked affordable housing. I, uh, it was something that I spent a fair amount of time on. Even before I became a lawyer, I was a, a tenant organizer in a VISTA project in Kansas. In the event, I, I worked with tenants groups, I worked with nonprofits before the city council. And I, I really found that the kind of change that we were endorsing, especially when it it was legalized made made legal you know it was was actually made official but that change lasted that that change was not just a temporary legal victory that somebody could do an end run around the following year and i found that very fulfilling and then uh, i had been a big critic of mayor bradley um saying that i thought a lot of the funds from the redevelopment agency were being diverted to wealthier neighborhoods. And um, he called me in and said, if you think you're so smart, why don't you try to do it? And I, we had a bunch of discussions about it because I wasn't sure I wanted to go to city Hall, well, but it turned out that was a great decision because I learned even further that when you're on the inside, if, as long as you maintain your integrity and you fight for what's right, you can actually make long lasting change from the inside also. So that's, um, That was my uh, arc. And then uh, about four years into that position, the National Housing Trust was looking for an executive director here in Washington, DC. And I had been looking for something that I could lead. I wanted to lead something. And uh, I came here in late 1993, we came for one year to try to turn around the National Housing Trust we kept our home. We had no intention of staying very long. And here now, I don't know, 27 or whatever it is, years later, uh, it's uh, been an amazing uh, journey. Uh, As Raymond knows, uh, the trust is kind of known for the synthesis of thinking and doing. So the trust actually has Five thousand apartments that it owns and operates. The trust actually has a loan fund that it it provides to others, and the trust actually does have people like Raymond to do preservation policy and energy efficiency policy, and and that's that synthesis that you know one informs the other. That always fascinated me. So I always tell people who are interested in policy that it really does. I don't think it really matters a lot about landing the right first job i think it matters a lot landing the second or third job but the most important thing is wrapping your mind around something and when you wrap your mind around anything you'll gain that little bit of confidence to do what you want to do and there's three things um, that i would urge people who are thinking about this to do i would urge them to um, find something that is something that's right, that they want to do that's good, that will leave the world in a better place, um, work with really smart people and have fun. And if you can do those three things, you'll have a you'll have made a, a life for yourself. So public policy has done that for me. I hope it'll do for that for some of your listeners really inspiring and
2: it's great to hear and uh great great words to to live by and great advice so thank you for that so
0: and i should say i should say this dodger cap is not an accident uh, the dodgers are playing the second game of the world series and i'm missing that game to be with you tonight evan which is saying how much i care about the public policy department of
2: Uh, We very much appreciate your (laughs) attendance and uh, we'll we'll not hopefully not take too much more of your time, but we do want to give you the floor now for this presentation. So I'm going to share the screen right now.
0: So before we get started, uh, just some background. Uh, I do teach in the public policy school, and um, I teach a class that is subtitled uh, the correlation of affordable housing energy efficiency, and racial justice. Some of these slides I've used in my class, most uh, I have not, I wanted to make sure we talked about the pre and post-election, where we are. But I will say that it's somewhat difficult to be a prognosticator today because we have so many variables, the election, the pandemic, and so many other things. But we'll do our best tonight to frame this issue um, both pre and post pandemic. But let's start uh, with kind of some grounding here. So let's go to the first slide. So uh, in the United States, unlike every other developed nation in the world, there is no right to housing. Um, There is a goal that every person, every person it's a decent home and a suitable living environment that was articulated by Franklin Delano Roosevelt and set forth in the 1949 Housing Act. But it is not true that every person who needs housing is entitled to housing. Um, Every person who needs food can apply for food stamps. Every person who puts money into social security will receive social security. Certain entitlements, health care for Medicaid, if you're poor enough, you get medical care. But that's not true in the United States. It's not a right or entitlement, it's a goal. And we've uh, honestly not met that goal, we've been far from it. Uh, as Raymond knows, who took my class, three fourths of those who are quote entitled or who would be eligible, I should say, for affordable housing in the United States are either uh, living in slums or paying 50% of more of their income for rent or both. So we're far from making it a right. And uh, that's something we'll talk about as we get to the election. Go ahead. So why does, why do we care about housing? And um, I s- spent a fair amount of time talking to people about this because I don't think housing is the most important thing in the world. I do think that it is impossible to um, have a, to reach your full potential without having a stable uh, house, uh, roof over your head um from a, if you step back a little bit why we should care about housing even if we have housing is it affects the environment Um, housing produces about 20 percent of all greenhouse gas emissions raymond's working on a on a project called green for all energy efficiency i'm sorry green uh, energy efficiency for all and that um has led to the placement of tens of millions of dollars for utilities to be put in affordable housing. Nevertheless, the Trump administration has deregulated many federal energy mandates, and we'll see what happens after the election. Housing accounts for more than 20% of the economy. People people don't realize it's not just our housing that matters. When we buy a house, when we live in a house, we buy stuff. We buy stuff to put in it. We pay for utilities. We uh, uh, use it to we put our TVs in it. We do all kinds of things. I'm sitting in my home right now. The lights are on. I'm going to have dinner later. All of these things we do in our home, and it's all all those uh, goods and services uh, account for housing. And the housing goes into the tank, and it did as it did in the Great Recession between 2007 and 2010. The economy goes in the tank. You can't have a good economy without a decent housing economy. Um, and then finally. Uh, if you care about health you have to care about housing there's a tremendous amount of work going on right now about the correlation between good health and good housing Um, many hospitals are understanding that their emergency room visitors are frequent visitors what they call frequent flyers and they're homeless they're people who have all kinds of issues who are have no doctor have no stable home and they end up in er's and it costs money to treat those patients And if you live in a lousy house or live in a slum, you're more likely to have toxic lead, mold, insect infestations, injuries, asthma, allergies, and heart disease. So there's a strong correlation, and now hospitals and health care systems are beginning to create housing funds for that very reason. Uh, Not the topic of this discussion, but I'm happy to talk to people if they'd like to talk about that. Next slide. If you care about education, you should care about housing. Uh, Where you live matters. Um, As Raymond knows and other people know, uh, growing up in a poor neighborhood almost guarantees that the school that you go to will probably have a relatively high turnover rate. The teachers will be uh, not uh, frequently uh, there for a very long period of time. And so it matters where one lives. So, Obama put together a thing called the Fair Housing Rule. And again, it's beyond our ken tonight to talk entirely about the Fair Housing Rule. But um, basically, it tried to encourage people in the suburbs, people like in Silver Spring and Bethesda, to accept affordable housing uh, in those communities. And it did so not in a way that punished people if they didn't do it, but it encouraged people to do it through data and persuasion. Um, That has now been repealed by the Trump administration. Again, we'll talk about that later when we talk about the contrast between the two administrations. But it makes it harder for developers to come into Silver Spring or Bethesda and try to convince the city councils of those places that they should put in affordable housing because they lost that lever. But That is the lever, and the reason it's an important lever is because kids need to have a good education. And we just happen to know that higher income neighbors, you know, surprise, surprise, have had better schools um, and, get, and the, and the tr- opportunities and the, the uh, educational opportunities that children can attain are higher if they go to those kinds of schools. And then finally, and, and something that is um, fundamental, is that we, everyone, including myself, anyone who's listening to this, who um, owns a home, if you're white and you're listening to this or uh, viewing it, and you own a home, there's a very high probability that you're standing on the shoulders of our racist past. And what I mean by that is that from about 1938 to about 1958, the Federal Housing Administration um, refused to insure loans for uh, African-Americans in this country. What that meant is African-Americans could not get low interest rates for homes. What that meant was that African-Americans uh, and Latinos, by the way, couldn't um, uh, get a, a loan without private mortgage insurance. It cost them more money. They had to put in b- bigger down payments. And again, this led to segregated housing. There's a famous story about a developer, it might have been in Cleveland, Evan, I forget where it was, who built a, uh, an all white development and uh, wanted to get an FHA loan loan because he wanted a low interest rate and he wanted to be able to put it on a 30-year time basis. And the appraisal came back and said he couldn't have a loan because it was too close to what they called a, quote, Negro neighborhood, unquote. So he built a wall around the development, a large development, and he got his loan. And there's stories, there are many, many, many stories like this. But I have no compunction in saying, you know, uh, if I am sitting on third base, it's not because I hit a triple. It's because um, my family, my grandfather in in particular, was able to get a home loan. My father was able to take a home equity. He was able to take a home equity loan out of that home to start his business. And had my fa- grandfather been black, that wouldn't have been the case. So, you know, we all work hard. We all uh, do the right thing, but. The, But racism, and particularly redlining, has uh, created a two level playing field, uh, especially in housing, and especially in in terms of accumulating wealth. Next slide. So where are we? We talked earlier about housing not being a right. Here's where we see the rubber meeting the road. So we have about 11 million extremely low income rental households in the United States, constituting about 30 million people a little over three million people. And for those people, we have four million units. So it's this kind of cruel game of musical chairs where they're all scattering around trying to get the available unit. Um, We have existing programs, one people-based, it's called vouchers, where I take my voucher and I go into the private market. And there's another one that's place-based called the low-income housing tax credit. And they are successful programs, It's not the fault of the programs that we are not um, serving people. It is the fact that those programs are not large enough and haven't been funded enough. So the critical question for the next administration is, will we begin to uh, realize that goal in any meaningful way by expanding either the voucher or tax credit program for all eligible households? That's the question that is on Hauser's minds today. Next uh, slide. Now, home ownership is fundamental about uh, 65% of us own, about 35% of us rent, um, two thirds, one third. And for many of us, it's the best way to create wealth. It's not the case for everyone, as we know from the Great Recession, um, the people who were taken advantage of, who didn't really have enough skin in the game, who um, ended up being foreclosed on, and, that was, so it's, it's important not to push people too hard into home ownership. There is this um, truth that if you do get into a home and you do pay down your mortgage over time, you will accumulate wealth because eventually you'll have something. That is true. But there are studies that show that if you put the same amount of money in the stock market over say 30 years, you might do almost as well. So it's important for us to We we have this kind of home ownership dream and it is a huge uh, benefit for most people, but it's not the only way for people to accumulate wealth. And Maybe not, uh, who knows? We we know now that millennials are not um, as interested in home ownership as my generation and the generation after me. Um, The other thing that we um, uh, know is that homeowners are increasingly paying more than they should for their mortgages. This is during a period, by the way, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, when housing is booming and people are wealthy, relatively speaking, except for the pandemic. Um, I think I think our unemployment rate was like three or four percent before the pandemic, five percent, whatever it was. So, but for the pandemic, even during the the, the quote good old days, pre-COVID, you know, the, the before days. Um, people were paying more for their mortgages. And so at some point, people get so much in debt that they have trouble making their payments and that's not good for them, it's not good for the housing market. And then finally, um, not surprisingly, um, most homeowners are white, um, most African Americans and Hispanics are not homeowners and wealth inequality has ensued as a consequence of that disparity. And so the question that's left for the next administration is, can I provide greater incentives for low-income homeownership? That's the question that is on, uh, should be on the administration's mind and will be on the Biden administration. Should he be elected? Next slide. So COVID. Uh, So many, I struggled to make this slide comprehensible and I could talk about this for hours um covid has taken uh, what was a unequal housing uh crisis and turned it in sharply increased that crisis or made it difficult and especially increased the risk of bankruptcy among small property owners um forgetting about homeownership just think about uh Evan, by the way, rents out a few, we were talking before the class, he, he rents out a few units to some, some people. And it's probably not going to happen to Evan, but I have a cousin who, who does the same. And um, the administration properly put in a moratorium on evictions. The administration did not put a moratorium on rent. And so people's amount of uh, back payment for rental debt is mounting and it mounts every month. It started in July, it's gonna end in December and the estimates are between 25 and 34 billion dollars of back rent. That's a lot of money, Even, even today, that's a lot of money. And will any administration provide targeted rental assistance to all the people who need it? Or are we gonna see the tsunami of evictions occurring after the moratorium expires? So <clears throat> pre-COVID, we had a housing market that was unequal, but people were more or less paying the rent. They had jobs. During COVID, people lost their jobs. The administration properly said, wait, 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 can't let her put everything on the street. So they put in a moratorium on evictions, but not on the rent being due. <clears throat> My cousin and Evan have to pay their bills. They have to pay their mortgage. They have to pay their rental property taxes. They have to pay maintain their properties. There's no rent coming into them. If they don't pay their their properties or mortgages, they'll get foreclosed on. So it's this <clears throat> there's this domino effect that can can impact not only the tenants but the owners, and it's a huge issue. And basically, we we stuck our head in the sand to wait till after the election to see. Um, we'll talk about this maybe, but. I, I, I don't know um, what the next administration will do. I hope that that this administration, even if it loses in November, will do something soon. And that's the question that is being asked today. Next slide. Okay, here we get to the compare and contrast. So again, hard to put all of these things on one slide, but I wanted to get to Evan's questions. even if Trump were to win this CDC moratoria and the consequences for property owners of the United States is going to require some amount of targeted rental assistance. There's no way that they could not provide at least billions of targeted rental, they've basically boxed themselves in. However, I don't think this administration is gonna extend the moratorium beyond January 1st. Uh, he said it a number of times, and other people have said that, And a lot of property owners uh, are on his team. And they basically are saying, you can't extend this thing. So I do think that's going to be, I do think in January 1st, if Trump wins, there's going to be a lot of anxiety among renters and landlords, a lot of renegotiation going on, um, and, Some people will muddle through, some people will be fine, and some people will go bankrupt. Um, The Trump administration will continue to try to slash HUD's overall budget. If um, the Senate stays Republican, um, that I don't know if they'll be able to do that if the House remains in Democratic hands, which I think it will. I don't think they'll be successful in that. They won't introduce any new affordable housing programs. They will try to uh, privatized Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They've been trying to do that for about two years already. Then they shelved it. Uh, it was one of his primary pillars of his housing program in 2016. And what they realized once they got into the details was privatizing these things is very hard without giving some kind of a government back end because essentially bankers and others are not willing to take the kind of risks that the private market is just not taking the kind of risk for home ownership um, for people making, say, under $100,000. So they'll talk about that. They might try to do it. It would be an enormous change for a housing system. It would mean a change in home ownership. It would mean that poorer people, even middle, lower amount of income people would probably have a hard time buying a home because they would have new down payment requirements, uh, shorter mortgages, and so on. And then he's made, they have tried to repeal the National Housing Trust Fund uh, funded by Fannie and Freddie, and I think they would be able to do that uh, in the next administration because that's a ruling that they can make. Uh, On the other hand, um, the Biden administration's platform says housing is a right, not a privilege. That's a quote. And that's the first time any platform of any U.S. president has said that. That includes Obama, by the way. Um, I mean, there's no question I, um, he would restore the Fair Housing Rule because it is so fundamental. And there's no question he would provide significantly more targeted rental assistance. He, uh, in the in the uh, platform, they talk about fully funding rental assistance. And so I can imagine them providing more funding for vouchers and tax credits. Um, they specifically have a $15,000 credit closing to encourage low-income homeownership. And uh, Raymond, they're increasing investments in resilience and energy efficiency. They actually have some targets. They talk about increasing, not repealing the investment in the National Housing Trust Fund. And then they again talk about improving and funding an eligibility for the tax credit. So a very dramatic, a stark choice for housing post-election. I wanna come back to you on uh, December 14th and we can talk about how it turns out.
2: Thank you for that. And I think it's really important, your last slide, to show that policy and politics are intertwined. And on one side, you have folks that are taking the, the Treasury Stance of uh, Hoover. I think it was Treasury Secretary Mellon who just said, "Liquidate everything. Just let let everything go bankrupt and let the free market take over." On the other side, you have folks who believe that housing is a right, and when the private sector doesn't support that right, then the government has to step in.
1: Great.
2: I guess the question that is next posed is, "Well, who's going to pay for it?" And right, sure. and how how do you respond to that where if everyone agrees that housing is a human right Right. where where do you look to pay
0: for it so two or three quick answers to that Um, the most important thing to remember is our housing system works for most of us we've gone 85 yards down the field it's not like we're can't throw the ball for a touchdown. We're close. It's this last 10 or 15 yards that we need to solve for. So when people who are listening to this think about how much it's gonna cost, I mean, you could, for 5 or $6 billion annually, you could fully fund vouchers. I mean, it's not a $100 billion. So it is important to say that providing housing as a right would not probably be a hugely expensive proposition but let's assume that it would cost something and some people there would have to come somewhere. Obviously the Biden administration has a tax plan to tax people like me higher, to tax people like you lower, and um, that's controversial but theoretically that could raise more revenue for the federal government that could be used for these kinds of social programs, but probably much more cost shift as opposed to a cost burden. Think about all the costs that are being borne for homeless people being on the street, going to a hospital. One um, survey in Los Angeles had the ER costs for hospitals. Um, if they, if those, if the people who came to the hospital were housed, their ER costs would go down by like eighty percent. And so there's there needs to be kind of a understanding that you're basically shifting the cost and trying to figure out a way so that what we're how we're handling homelessness and how we're handling housing right now is very costly it's just it's very costly It costs the hospitals it costs the insurance companies it comes back to your pocket and my pocket there's no way to get around that somebody's going to take care of these people they're, they're going to be fed something's going to happen and if you unless you're willing to to take them out to sea and leave them there they're going to be with us so the smarter thing to do is to provide efficient low cost housing, get them training, get them get them get their heads right. It's a lot easier to do that. It's a lot less costly than what we're doing right now. And so um that's the that's the second answer to your question. First there might be a cost. If there is, I don't think it's fundamentally high. The Bipartisan Policy Commission, I think, said it would cost five billion dollars a year to provide doctors to everybody. Uh, and that would be like a 15% increase in HUD's budget. Um, and then the third, the third answer I think is, uh, beyond tax change and cost shift, is that um, over time, providing the jobs that we are going to be to do New Deal-like for these new housing. Remember, we have 7 million households who are out there who are gonna have to house. Is equivalent to a New Deal housing program. And that's gonna raise money for governments because those properties are gonna compete property taxes, it's gonna raise jobs, it's going to provide all kinds of goods and services to the economy. It's actually gonna increase housing's portion of the whole GDP, which will in turn mean that the the economy will run better. So I honestly, and I'm not trying to just, you know. Uh, dangle this in front of you and say, you know, it's all good, and but it's it's the case that really, if you look at it, it doesn't cost that much. It really doesn't because of all the benefits for house that housing that, it, that accrues to people having good housing.
2: And before turning over to Raymond, I just think it's a great way to um, argue with a person who may not have a humanitarian bone in their body to realize that. When you have a bunch of foreclosures going on, for instance, that's going to create property values that are going to sink. You're going to have less uh, revenue for governor, uh, government services. And uh, it just continues to spiral out of control from there. But Raymond,
1: please, let me pass it to you. I've- um, yeah, I, I just I really appreciate that that first question and the answer. And I think uh, it's, it's something that a lot of people don't consider um, the, that the immediate investment will lead to a generational benefit. And ultimately, um, that has a high potential to reduce the amount of funds that actually have to go into these programs later on because these families will have access to the education, but they should have access to, they will be, to work their jobs and stay healthy. Payers um, and pay into the system and technology.
2: hold on, Re- really, really quickly. Uh, are you getting that uh, feedback, Michael, on the audio? Okay. So yes, really? I am. I am. Yes. Yeah. So the the um, just maybe like pull back just uh uh fifteen seconds because your your audio for whatever reason got like super hot, distorted. So yeah, sorry about that. Uh,
1: mess you up. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure where I
0: So, yeah, let's Start at the beginning. start at the beginning. Yeah, You were on a roll. Just, but you might, what you might do is just do 30 seconds to see if it does it again, but I think you're okay.
1: Um, so I just want to say, I really appreciate the question and, and the answer because, um, I, I agree 100%. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that being able to put that upfront investment in housing is actually going to um, increase the potential to have to put less into housing later on because the families in need will have the opportunities um, afforded to them like education, um, health, uh, being able to hold a job, become taxpayers um, into a system that then they will be contributing to and not Necessarily needing the assistance from because no one no one wants to be living, you know, needing assistance and dependence. I, I grew up in that um, and, and I'm really fortunate now that I do not so um, I, I think it's just it's really difficult because um, Constituents want to see um, immediate results instant gratification <clears throat> and policymakers want to be able to provide that and so by saying you know we're going to put this investment in that will have this long term turn effect um, doesn't buy well with, with so many people and I, it's just really unfortunate to me.
2: So Michael I, I'm gonna at least at challenge you a little bit on something that you said on the mm-hmm in the presentation about millennials and you mentioned that okay. maybe the millennials, uh, aren't interested in home ownership. Yeah. And I believe that 2008, 2009, uh, was never something that we fully recovered from, uh, the mm-hmm. stock market recovered from, but the actual ability to have a, a job that could pay enough to cover mortgage and things like that. I, I believe most people want to have their own homes and, and, Start their families and and those type of things. So I'm just I, I have heard that said before, but I'm I'm just curious if um, if you if you want to explain that a little
0: more or not. Sure. So let me restate it. You're quite right. Actually, studies uh, consistently show that millennials want to buy homes. And if I said they didn't want to buy homes, that was my mistake. But they're having trouble doing so. And it's there are two reasons for that, obviously. Student debt is at an all- all-time high. And so people have already a significant amount of debt on their, balance, on their individual balance sheets. But more importantly, housing prices have risen a lot faster than incomes. And so um, it is not unusual in high-cost cities like New York and San Francisco for people earning very high salaries to not be able to afford a home because housing prices have outpaced incomes. Now, that's not true everywhere, but it is true in a lot of America. Uh, Indeed, um, in every county in the United States but one, um, someone earning um, a minimum wage cannot afford a reasonably priced two bedroom apartment. And in many, many states, um, especially larger cities, it is difficult for one earner families to afford a home, even a starter home. Um, You and Raymond have been able to scrape it together, and I'm proud of you for doing that. You know how difficult it was to do. But think about what if you wanted to try to do that in Washington, D.C., or some other place, or for that matter, Bethesda or Solar Spring, it would have been harder. And so what I'm suggesting is not that people don't want to do it, but the circumstances are such that we're seeing, the actual facts are, people are buying homes later uh, than they did in my generation and, and the 15. It's just a fact. People uh, who typically would have bought their first home at the age of, say, 26 or 27, are not, are, there's like a four-year delay there or something like that. And that's that, that we've never had that consistently. And even since COVID, I don't know if you've noticed, prices of homes in the suburbs have gone up during COVID because people wanna get outside of the cities into suburbs. And in my neighborhood, there's all kinds of for sale signs because my home's more valuable. Well, as long as that's the case, where where the housing prices are, in, are fast, rising faster than incomes, it doesn't make any difference if you're a millennial or anybody else, if you can't afford it. Now, low interest rates makes it possible to, to stretch, as you know, but rates are pretty darn low they're hard to cut. you can't cut them very much more. So without a rise in incomes, I don't see how we can have a rise in home ownership uh, by millennials and people who are just in their first or second job. That's all I meant to say. I,
1: I feel like I I might defend you a little more, uh, Michael, on that, because I, I think that um, millennials want to own homes, but I think, they want to also live where the action is more. And so they are in, in, and the idea of owning a home seems so far out of reach that, you know, it's, it's this decision of, you know, do I, um, save and invest for all of these years, you know, by living with roommates, probably somewhere not really desirable to then own my home or, I can afford this right now and I really like this area and it's walkable right. in restaurants and clubs and I'm near all my friends, so I'm just gonna right. do that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a big pattern. I mean, we don't know, honestly, Evan, what's gonna be the outcome of COVID. It could be that the next administration will try to muscle up F- Fannie and Freddie in light of what's gone on and try to put together mortgage products that will be more attainable for people of moderate incomes. But it will take, for that to happen, you have to have government assistance. the, the current system, the current privatized system, will not reach down and help out people who want to live in uh, nicer neighborhoods um, and don't have necessarily the incomes that would support a large mortgage. So without a housing credit or something like that at the beginning to deal with the down payment or something, it's going to be hard to, to do it. It's not impossible. There's a National Homestead Act or something like that that, that uh, Ron Wyden has put together. It hasn't gotten a lot of support. But there's all kinds of ideas, but they all require some kind of a national program.
2: So I I really appreciate how Everything is kind of interconnected with the housing. The student loan crisis right now has prevented a lot of people who've come out of school their Their main monthly payments you know used yeah. to be able to be for a mortgage is now yeah. going to uh, student loan uh, lenders and banks. I do want to bring up the the interest rate aspect where mm-hmm. on a on a four percent loan on uh, the home that I have, which i 'm very I have a lot of gratitude, and I agree that being able to build the the wealth and asset is based on the the shoulders of a lot of very discriminatory policies that mm-hmm. we need to obviously uh, compensate for for right. the current future yeah. generations and and change that around. But I see this four percent interest rate, and I bought in 2014. Um, I'm, I'm very happy about that compared to 1980s. It was right. what almost 18% uh, through <laughs> yeah. the Federal Reserve and on the 10 yeah. year. And, right. and But I'm paying $200,000 over the course of 30 years right. to a private bank that goes to the right. Federal Reserve and gets almost 0% right. overnight window. So right. some, some, I, why can't I cut out this 4% tax, <laughs> private tax on me and just go straight to the Federal Reserve and get a 0%, and then I could pay this off in 15 years and not get taxed $200,000 to bankers, essentially.
0: Well, this is, uh, you've asked a fundamental question about the nature of how we allocate capital in our society. Uh, We've chosen, and we're not, not alone. Banks are not unique to the United States of America. I mean, banks provide a service. They provide a service by allocating risk. And no government um, has ever um, been very good, frankly, at assessing um, individualized risk uh, between Evan, Michael, and Raymond and providing them the uh, individualized curated loan that works just for them. So there is a, you know, I do think that um banks provide a service um a fundamental service that no government has never done very well whether they should be compensated in the amount that they're receiving is a different question and um i um that's a longer story not tied only to housing policy but i think uh um the answer to your question lies more in um whether we can reform Lenders and make them more responsive to people's needs, not whether we should eliminate them. Um, and I, you know, I'm a recovering lawyer, but I know that um, was it at Macbeth, kill all the lawyers. I think it was Macbeth. Anyway, um, let's not kill all the bankers. Not on this podcast, anyway.
2: I'm all for the private sector. I just also <laughs> want to acknowledge that um, it, like the bailout in 2009, right. 2008, right. 2009 where we bail out all these banks and we don't reorganize them. And then they end up loaning our money back to us at interest, I think is inherently unjust and unfair and is a part of a problem that hopefully Biden learned as a vice president for eight years, not to do that again. But there is a tremendous lobbying power within wall street and that's an issue. So
0: I'm in violent agreement
2: so one thing that I am curious or kind of not curious, but anticipating after the election, we have a $3 trillion de- uh, deficit for this year. It's, uh, it
0: it's, it's going to go up.
2: And it was $19 trillion debt uh, before this yeah. um, person, the tenant of the Oval Office came in and uh, now it's 27 trillion about there. Yep. And yep. that is an issue. I, I don't believe that you can just print, money endlessly. Uh, The U.S. has had a very special position as international reserve currency since 1945. And I'm just anticipating as soon as this election is over, the austerity hawks are going to come out and say, we we don't have any more money left. Um, Mm -hmm. We need to cut services and Mm -hmm. we need to jack up interest rates. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: that will then contract the economy. Austerity has never worked. When you reduce right. the amount of money supply, you're always going to have a downward spiral. Right. But at the same time, I do agree that these, the, the debt and the deficits are absolutely um, problematic. And yeah. the only solution is to grow the economy by from the 19, $20 trillion economy to a $40 right. trillion dollar economy yeah. over the next 10, right. 20 years. Right. So then the debt becomes a much smaller percentage. And that's it's crazy. through those investments and actually housing starts, if you can build housing right. for everyone, uh, right. you can right. then build up asset and ownership and construction right. jobs and cement plants and mm-hmm. logistical supply chains. And that's something that I'm very much um, advocating for with this next
0: So uh, I, I think, I, I mean, I. so again, we find ourselves in agreement. I mean, I don't, I mean, we will see, Evan, and you're anticipating a Biden election. I'm not anticipating anything. I don't know, but assuming Biden wins, and assuming the Senate gets closer, maybe even down to one vote or less, I do think you'll see an infrastructure bill of some kind. I don't think it'll meet Evan Hops uh, or perhaps uh, Evan Paps, uh, 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 not and. Uh, Anticipated wants or needs, but it'll meet a lot of things. And it'll begin, and if it produces, and I hope it does, you know, within the next four years, um, some growing of the economy, um, that will push back on these austerity measures that you talked about. The other thing you have to remember is that as much as we do or don't like the Federal Reserve, so far they've remained relatively independent. And have not raised interest rates without reason, as long as the economy is, not, is contracting or not, as long as people are, you have an eight percent unemployment or seven percent unemployment or nine percent, whatever it is, going into 2020, 2020 or 2021. I don't see interest rates rising anytime soon. There will be people saying, "Let's cut back the federal government, let's reform Social Security, and so on," and that it could happen, especially if Trump wins. I think, let me put it this way, if, if Trump wins, you're exactly right. There's no question about that. The austerity, austerity hogs will come out, there will not be an infrastructure bill. There will not, uh, or, or if, it, if, it isn't, if it will not be the kind of infrastructure that's gonna really help people. Um, so, uh, I just don't think we know. And there's an old saying in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I commend it to you. He said, uh, don't live in the wreckage of the future. And I suggest that all of us, especially right now, not live in the wreckage of the future. We have enough going on right now. Let's just get to November 4th. Hopefully the right outcome will happen. And then we can start living for the future.
2: And I know we're getting uh, low on time, but Raymond, could you talk a little bit about the the green opportunity for housing and uh, what you're kind of focus on with that. And Michael,
1: as well, please jump in
2: because I know you have a deep background in that.
1: Um, so the, the Energy Efficiency for All program, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's a project that exists in, in 12 states. Um, most of them are on the eastern side of the country. Um, we do operate in California as well. And it, it really looks at the intersection of environment, um, energy, and housing. And so the project is comprised of um, leaders in housing policy, in energy policy, in um, environmental policy who come together and come up with tactics depending on the state and localities that they're working in to um, target uh, low income multifamily housing and make it more energy efficient um, and as a way to reduce the energy burden, which was one of the issues that Michael talked about in in his slides, you know, where um, families are are paying, um, you know, more than Fifteen percent of their income to live in their homes, and in addition, you know, suffering um, uh, worse health outcomes, which you know leads to higher cost um, in uh, in health care, which leads to children missing school, um, and you know, people missing work, and so it 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 is looking at housing from this you know one aspect and and trying to improve it. And what we are finding is, um, you know, there's the EVA program overall has had a lot of wins and um, it's it's been very effective, which is why it continues to, you know, to be funded and and grow um, over the, the last several years. Um, you know, with COVID, um, it has definitely shifted our focus and really put us on, on more defense than we already were um, with this administration. And so there's, um, I I feel like, you know, for me personally in the work that I'm doing, there's um, uh, really a um, drive to maintain what we have and not uh, lose additional funding, not, um, lose the regulations that we already have. Um, you know, in Philadelphia, we have um, Act Act One Twenty Nine, which is um, uh, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is um, going into a new phase. And now, because of COVID, you know, the um, uh, you know the energy producers are saying, you know, well, we can't because of COVID, we can't really meet these new targets so you know we should get some uh leeway and and maybe reduce the goals some and and we're seeing that in in several different types of policies um throughout all of EFA, and so really we are just trying to prevent um that from happening right now
0: i'll just repeat uh evan that uh, the biden administration has a whole section on energy efficiency in housing. Um, There have been a lot of plans. Obama has had some plans, and we've actually, during the Obama administration, started Energy Efficiency for All. And I think weatherized something like um, 100,000 subsidized apartments. So it's not out of the question, depending on if Biden wins, that Raymond's concerns, his present concerns could be reversed, or well, certainly it's not going to happen in November, December, but in the next a year from now, you could certainly see a different attitude towards what he's doing.
1: Yeah, and I, I you know, I glance at that planet, it looks like, you know, there, there's substantial funding that they are, um, you know, listing, of course, as you mentioned, Evan, you know, how, how are these things paid for and, and you know, it's not just a matter of, you know, Biden signing something and making it happen. There has to be buy in and, and an understanding. And, and for something like this, you know, energy efficiency, um, you really are banking on others buying into the long term benefits. There really are very few instant benefits that people see. Um, and so it's, it always makes that a harder sell.
2: And just trying to get all of the different interest groups together, saying the construction folks are going to be able to retrofit all these buildings, those are jobs and
0: uh, mm-hmm.
2: and a lot of it though is always going to come down to finance and who's going to pay for it? Is it going to be a progressive tax or or a, the opposite of that so
0: so just just to make sure we don't leave anybody with the wrong impression, there are a number of financial models that demonstrate that When we reduce the utility payments by landlords, they are able to keep rents more affordable because their operating costs are going down. And something like the largest controllable operating expense a multifamily owner has is uh, his, his or her energy burden. So reducing that burden not only helps the climate, it also means that they don't have to charge higher rents. And it um, means they're able to operate their property more efficiently. So there are loan funds now that are predicated on giving you a loan to retrofit your property. And I'll, and I'll count on my repayment by your lowered energy bills. And so um, it's quite true that it's not an immediate payback, but it's um, for some of these utility uh, installations and what they do, these incentives, it's pretty quick payback. So uh, we'll see. I, I'm more hopeful. I, I think that uh, I think we've kind of turned the corner on energy efficiency. I think people have kind of gotten the message.
1: Yeah, I I think I would agree with that. I think you know, especially with it being tied to climate, um, you know, there there really is a big focus on that. So, I I really appreciate that point.
2: Well, I really appreciate this conversation. There's always going to be uh, more opportunity. And, Michael, I'd love to have you come back on uh, you know, after the election. And, but I know you have a very important uh, sporting event to attend to uh, with the, the Dodgers. I do, indeed. So thank you very much for coming on. And uh, this is Episode 5 of the Policy Dialogue Series.